0: It's 1984 in Bangor, Maine, a small city in central Maine. Charlie Howard is a 23-year-old young man. He's just moved to Bangor a couple months earlier, and he's openly gay. It's a Saturday night in July. Charlie and a close friend are out for a walk at night after having a potluck dinner at the Unitarian Universalist Church he attends. That's when three young men and two young women who are out for a drive come across them. The three young men, who are all teenagers, get out of the car and start taunting Charlie and his friend about their sexuality. The taunting continues, and then they start chasing Charlie and his friend. The friend is able to get away, but Charlie trips and falls. That's when the three start beating him, Charlie can't get away, and he starts to have an asthma attack. One of the three suggests that they should toss him over a bridge into a stream of water. Charlie can't swim, and he even tells his attackers this as he's begging for his life. They don't stop. They pry his hand from the railing and throw him over the bridge into the stream below. A 15-foot drop. Charlie's body was found hours later. The autopsy finds that he died as a result of drowning and that an asthma attack was a contributing factor. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Invisible Hate. I'm Asad Butt.
1: And I'm Sadia Khan. Invisible Hate focuses on true crime stories where the victims are members of minority groups. Each episode, we share one story, and then we discuss if it should be considered a hate crime or not.
0: You know, Sadia, this story is so sad and I think really indicative of the homophobia that existed in America during that time period. But Charlie's death is really a seminal moment for the gay and civil rights community, and that's why we're bringing it to you. So let's start from the beginning. It's a Saturday night during the summer of 1984 in Bangor. Bangor is just a few hours north of Maine's biggest city, Portland, and is considered the commercial center of Northern Maine. Just a fun fact, Sadia, I actually lived in Bangor across two summers early in my career in broadcast journalism. Bangor is a homogeneous, insular, blue-collar city with timber industry roots and conventional values.
1: So first, said I am always surprised when I find out where you've lived.
0: <laughs> it's a lot of places.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of places, and most of them are a bit vanilla, if I can say that. And the interesting thing is this name, Bangor, it reminds me of Bangalore, which is crazy. I don't know how I'm making the connection, but anyways.
0: Yeah. And, you know, a fun fact. So I was up there because I was working in broadcast journalism, working at a local TV station. And when I first went up there, I pronounced it as Bangor, which is a lot of people pronounce (laughs) it that way. And the first thing that they tell you is, no, it's Bangor. And so that's kind of instilled in my head now. So this particular week in 1984, Bangor is celebrating its 150th anniversary. There is a big festival called the River City Festival, complete with a downtown parade and music and all the things that make a festival a festival. One well-known resident in Bangor is Charlie Howard. Charlie is a recent transplant to Bangor and is lanky and bold and just unapologetically himself. He is originally from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, but he spent his formative years there kind of being just mercilessly bullied at school for being effeminate, frail, and openly gay. He actually had to skip his high school graduation, Sadia, to spare his family and himself the
1: torture. Oh, my gosh. I said this is so sad. As you're narrating this story, I can visualize this 23-year-old kid who is sure of himself despite being bullied and despite being mistreated he knows who he is right?
0: I think that's right and and for me I think this bullying you know I grew up in the 80s and 90s in New England and yeah it was common in school to call someone gay or call someone the F word this was like a, a common occurrence in, in schools and people just didn't think anything of it um, unless, of course, you were the victim. And so, yeah, I agree. Just kind of kind of sad. So, Charlie is now 23 in 1984, and he's just moved to Bangor a couple months earlier. Uh, Maine has not been that much kinder to him. He's often ostracized, and he actually recently found out that his kitten was strangled outside of his apartment. Oh, no. Crazy. But he's a proud and avid member of the Unitarian Church, which sponsors a gay and lesbian support group and is one of the few places gay people in Bangor can be themselves. So now back to the night, the church is holding a potluck dinner, which Charlie attends. He then decides to check his post office box downtown and asks his friend, Rory Ogden, to join him. He doesn't like walking alone after dark like most of us.
1: Yeah, nobody does.
0: While this is happening, three teenagers from Bangor, James Baines, Sean Mabry, and Daniel Ness, are party hopping along with two girls. And just to note, these are teens. One is 15, one is 16, and one is 17. They've been drinking all day and are out to buy more beer with one of the girls' fake IDs. So they get in the car searching for more beer, and that's when they spot Charlie and Roy walking arm in arm halfway across the State Street Bridge around 1030 at night. Sean pulls the car over, and the three boys jump out, and they begin to taunt Charlie and Roy about their sexuality. Apparently, James, the 15-year-old, had verbally harassed Roy earlier in the night, but the report to the police was, you know, typical it didn't go anywhere the harassing continues you can imagine the types of things that these kids were saying you know teenage boys especially you know drunk teenage boys they're the worst
1: and teenage boys or girls can be really brutal as well oh
0: of course and you've raised a couple as well i'm not saying, <laughs> obviously have. i'm not saying that your girls are anything like this but i can only imagine you know what 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 you've been through
1: but I know the kind of, you know, conversations other kids at this age have and how they can bully people who do not look like them.
0: Yeah, agreed. And, you know, the harassing continues to go on and it gets worse. And and then they start to chase Charlie and Roy. Charlie trips on the curb and falls, but tells Roy to keep running. And you can kind of imagine it in your head, Sadia, right? Hmm. The threesome then reach Charlie and start kicking and beating him. And I'm not sure if it's because of the running or the beating or the fall, probably all three. But then Charlie begins to have an asthma attack and it's just just heartbreaking, you know?
1: So sad.
0: So now they're all standing on the State Street Bridge over the Kanduskig Stream. That's when one of the boys suggests throwing Charlie over it. Now, it's not a tall bridge. The water is about 15 feet below. But still, obviously, you know, no one wants to get tossed from a bridge. But what's worse is that Charlie can't swim and is literally begging them not to throw him over.
1: So, said, this is so hard to listen to because I don't know how to swim. And I do have nightmares about drowning and just listening to you narrate this tragic situation is making me so anxious and so sad because as I said I don't know how to swim and that's my biggest fear that I will one day drown in water.
0: You know we've seen it in movies or maybe you've even seen it in person where even someone is trying to push someone into a pool and whether they can swim or not you know if that person is not expected to go into that body of water they are you know, frantic. You know, you've seen mm. it, right? Clearly. And and I can just imagine what Charlie was trying to do. You know, and so he is there. He's grabbing onto the railing, you know, and the three of them pry his hand off of the railing and then throw him over the bridge. They return to their car laughing.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Before leaving the scene, they actually see Roy and they basically threaten him too, basically saying, you know, they'll hurt him if he tells anyone what they did. And, you know, you can also imagine how traumatic this is for Roy. You know, he's now frantically trying to spot Charlie in the water, you know, and that's hard. It's dark. And the stream, you know, the river, the stream, whatever you want to call it, has these tall concrete retaining walls designed for fluctuating tides. So there aren't any ledges or banks for Charlie to grab onto.
1: Oh my God, I said, this is so difficult to to listen to, but what happens next?
0: Yeah, so remember this is 1984, and so, you know, no cell phones, and so you can imagine Roy is trying to figure out what to do next. He runs to the nearest intersection and pulls a fire alarm for help. I don't know if I would have thought of doing that, you know, in that moment, but, you know, good on him for doing what he did. And so search and rescue arrives shortly afterwards, They search for Charlie, hoping that he's alive, but unfortunately at 1210, like an hour and a half after all this started, Charlie's body is recovered south of the bridge where he had been thrown in. He's in three feet of water, he is cut and bruised, and an eel is wrapped around his neck. The autopsy finds that he actually died as a result of drowning, with an acute asthma attack as a contributing factor. Later that morning, the girls who had been riding with the three boys go to the police to make a report. The eldest assailant, Daniel Ness, turns himself in, immediately once he hears that Charlie has died. The other two initially try to escape on a freight train but then return home, they are arrested and charged with murder the next day.
1: I said, I am confused. So from my understanding of the case, these girls were involved in assaulting Charlie, right? But then they go to the police the next day and make a report. And I wonder what happened and why did they decide to do that?
0: So, You know, I think just to be clear, according to the reports, the girls didn't do any of the physical beating and throwing Charlie over the bridge, but they were there um, and they saw what happened and and clearly didn't, you know, stop. Um, My guess is that, yeah, they they felt guilty about it the next day and, and wanted to report it to police. I don't know their ages. I'm assuming that they were young as well. And so they probably woke up the next day and said, oh, my God, what did we do? And and went to the police.
1: Or maybe they spoke to their parents and their parents, you know, advised them to go to the police. Right.
0: Totally. Yeah.
1: So what happens next? Obviously, these kids did it. We know that.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, obviously, there were a lot of witnesses there to the event. So it's never really disputed what happened. The perpetrators spend one night in jail and then they return to their parents' custody to await trial. Um, And I should note that they first tell police that they just wanted to, quote, beat up a faggot, end quote, which they had done in the past. Later, they'd claim that Charlie actually made advances towards one of them a few days before. And sadly, I guess this is a common tactic, which I didn't realize has a name. It's called the gay panic tactic. And what it does is it puts the victim on trial instead of the perpetrators. Hmm. The three boys have a history of getting into trouble. They have substance abuse issues, and at least one may have mental issues. Uh, You know, this doesn't justify what they did, but just wanted to share that as well. You know, I think I just want to note that the community, Bangor community, is hugely divided on the murder, and any formal city response is remembered as muted.
1: Why are they divided? I don't get this.
0: So, Sadie, I definitely want to talk about that. And first, I want to share kind of the supporters of Charlie. And so 200 people showed up to protest outside the police station. And the same people later held a vigil at the church. And they actually dropped flowers over the bridge where he's thrown as a remembrance. And that ritual actually still continues every year until today. Um, but as I said before, some residents in Bangor are not sympathetic and some even heckle the supporters even during the memorial service and some even deface the spot that he died
1: so Asad, let me get this right are you saying that some of these residents were not sympathetic because of charlie's sexual orientation and they thought it was okay to murder him
0: I think this goes back to what we were describing before. I think it's this idea that, you know, many people were holding Charlie responsible for being so blatant about his sexuality and some people were saying, you know, that these are just boys being boys and this is something uh, a joke that got out of control and led to, you know, his death. Um and you know, I think Charlie himself, his friends were worried about him and his safety before he was murdered and um, advised him to tone down his kind of overt you know sexuality uh, and his response was always you know i am who i am and he said i refuse to participate in my own oppression and when you think about it that's it's so progressive of him in 1984 in bangor maine to to kind of you know stake his claim um to who he is you know
1: yeah of course and I just want to expand this conversation a little. I feel like a lot of times societies predetermine um, who's the villain and who's the hero. So they try to elevate somebody's humanity while dehumanizing people that they think don't look like them or don't believe in certain values that the majority believes in and this case is a great example of that right so how the society creates that narrative and then promotes is just because Charlie was explicit about his sexual orientation he was somehow deemed not worthy of living in a way
0: that's exactly right not worthy of living not worthy of justice you know not worthy of having those that did this to him being held accountable I think that's exactly right
1: So I said, did this stuff happen before in Bangor or
0: Maine? So, sadly, there's no precedence for a case of this magnitude in Bangor. And also at the time, Maine was the state with the lowest murder rate. But a Bangor policeman said this wasn't an isolated incident, that there are other assaults that happened, especially in places where gay people gathered, like along the trails um, by the stream. The issue, which is why we do this podcast, is that frequently the crimes weren't being reported because victims Mm. were afraid to be outed. Um, And so, Sadia, you know, the big discussion points in this case were basically whether Charlie was being targeted because he was gay, whether the kids wanted to kill him or just harass him, and whether they were targeting him specifically or if it was sort of this wrong place at the wrong time type of thing. A professor, Charlie knew stated that he was sure the attack was targeted and due to Charlie's sexuality. Others, like the high school principal, stated that the perpetrators weren't doing well in school generally and likely went to harass someone rather than kill them. That principal said he thought Charlie was targeted not because he was gay, but, quote, it was because he was weak, like kids yelling at drunks.
1: Oh, my gosh. I said I am getting so angry right now i knew that you. this is quintessential toxic masculinity patriarchy at play right especially what the principal said oh my gosh i said this is just so bizarre and such bs to me so what happened at the trial
0: yeah, so the attorney general of Maine wants the boys to be tried as adults to show the public his office takes hate crimes seriously. And I remember the kids are 15, 16, and 17. And, you know, Sadia, just a, just a a a point like I had trouble trying to decide how to describe the three of them. Like at times mm. I'm calling them a threesome, at times I'm calling them perpetrators, sometimes I'm calling them kids. You know, it's it's for me, I'm also struggling with whether they're adults or kids in this case, you know, and and so it's, some of that comes across in in this language.
1: That's fair, I said, and you're right. They were 15, 16, and 17, so they were kids, and these kids committed a heinous crime.
0: So there's lots of debate about whether they should be tried as adults in the court system. Juvenile cases focus on rehabilitation, while adult ones are about protecting society and rehabilitation. It also, you know, obviously impacts the length of their sentences. And so during a hearing about it, there is a bunch of testimony from law enforcement, from medical examiners, witnesses, psychologists. Evidently, the presence of Charlie's family, um, you know, they're just devastated, alters the courtroom environment entirely. People become much more somber and much more sympathetic to Charlie and his plight. And so after two days of deliberations, the judge decides to try them as juveniles. He notes that the offense was violent, willful and aggressive, but that the perpetrator's records, attitudes and lifestyles are not those of adults. He says that there is not enough evidence that they would threaten the safety of the community and doesn't feel like a longer time in prison and a more secure facility, which is where adults would go, would deter future crimes.
1: Yeah, I am almost conflicted here, Asad, because at the end of the day, what they did was so brutal and so tragic. And yet they are kids and the judge is right, what will it achieve to try them as adults, right? At such a young age, I feel like they probably did not even consciously understand what they had done and the crime that they had committed.
0: They're they're so young, Sally, like like you said, and their brains are still developing, and they, you know, I think boys of that age, or even um, girls at that age, you know, a lot of They don't really can't conceive the consequences of their actions. And I'm not trying to undermine what they did. Obviously, it was horrible, but they are young, you know.
1: But I said, I am curious to know what they were being taught at home, in school, in the society, the community, because when kids this young commit crimes like these, especially hate crimes, there is something to be had about how society creates narratives about minorities. So I am curious to know who their parents were, what they were being taught, what kind of values they were being given within the confines of their house.
0: Yeah, I think, Saudi, I think that's a great point, And I think we're just limited in, in the information that we can get, um, especially at this point, you know, 40 years later. Going back to the case, Saudi, at first the boys... Plead innocent, and then when the charges are then reduced to manslaughter, they plead guilty. And then you know just to note, in in order for them to have been convicted of murder, you know basically they uh, the prosecutors would have had to prove premeditation and a willful disregard for life. And it seems like the prosecutors didn't know if they would be able to kind of prove, you know, Charlie's stated inability to swim. And so that's why they think that the, it was reduced to manslaughter. The boys were then sentenced to the main youth center in South Portland to an indeterminate stay that can't exceed their 21st birthday. This is the maximum sentence under the main juvenile code. And for a lot of people, this felt like a slap on the wrist. The records were sealed because they were juveniles, uh, but all three boys were released after two years or less.
1: I said, I'm struggling a bit because on the one hand, they were kids and to be detained for more than two to three years, I wonder what would it achieve, right? But if they're out in the society, then there is more to be learned to help them in a way recondition their biases, and I may be wrong. What are your thoughts on it?
0: Yeah. You know, sadly, I, I, as we've talked about on the podcast before, I'm a firm believer in rehabilitation. And, you know, I think that if, if their stay, you know, after two years or whatever it was, you know, allowed them to be rehabilitated and, you know, understand what they did and they were quote unquote changed people afterwards, you know, I, I think that's great. And I struggle with uh, how short it was. And, you know, Charlie's life mm. was over, you know, like, or, yeah, or that absolutely. Charlie's died, you know, like, it's, it, it seems a bit unfair, but I, I definitely lean more towards this was the right decision based on the age of the kids.
1: Right. And when I think of these kids who were kids at the time, of course, in 1984, I wonder if they even understood or could comprehend the gravity of what they had done or the idea of, hate crime or hating somebody to the point where you take their life.
0: I would guess that all three of them would say that murder was not the end game for what they were trying to do that night. But, you know, clearly it was a result of their horrible actions. So sadly, I feel like this is an easy one for us to debate um, as to whether this was a hate crime or not. You know, I think this, for me, has all the hallmarks of being a hate crime. Uh, you know, the fact that they were targeting him because he was gay, and the end result of obviously it being murder and 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 all that kind of stuff. For me, this is a no-brainer.
1: I agree with you, Asad, but I will go back to what I just said. So, does a murder or an assault qualify as hate crime if the perpetrator doesn't? really understand if they are committing a hate crime in this case given the age of three boys
0: so are you, you're saying that can can one commit an accidental hate crime
1: right and in this case it's specifically because of their ages there's no other reason adults know if they are committing hate crimes right so i i still am struggling to understand what their frame of mind was at the time what They were thinking what headspace they were in.
0: For me, a hate crime is a hate crime regardless of whether it was intentional or not, and then trying to determine that intent. And so, you know, for me, as we discussed, they were clearly beating him up because he was gay and targeting him because he was gay. I think you bring up uh, some really valid points there, Sadia, and I think that maybe we shouldn't be as quick to label something a hate crime if it's done by you know, underage people, because they might not know better, I guess, is is what is maybe what we're saying. Right.
1: Right. But then we've also covered cases where we have called it a hate crime, even if it were committed by underage people. So it's hard stuff. (laughs) I am at least conflicted. Right. Although it would be so interesting to have a psychologist answer this question because they can probably give us insights into, how kids' minds operate and how they work. So if there are any psychologists, psychiatrists out there who can help us dissect this more, please do write to us. I'm really curious to understand the psyche of a 15-year-old committing such heinous
0: crime. 100% agree.
1: So what was the long-term impact of this murder?
0: Yeah, so Charlie Howard's death serves as a reminder of the ongoing struggle for equality and acceptance for the LGBTQ community and the importance of speaking out against hate and violence towards marginalized groups. And his murder would actually have a tremendous long-term impact on the city, state, and country. In Maine, his death triggers the beginning of the formal gay rights movement in the state, There are more alliances, and more legislation, and more organization. Charlie's Church leads the way. They form a movement demanding more tolerance in schools and the community, and better anti-harassment and hate crime policies and legislations. A bunch of new groups are formed, like the Maine Lesbian Gay Political Alliance and the Bangor Area Gay Lesbian Straight Coalition. Bangor's school committee actually begins programs for staff to address prejudice and added language about sexual orientation to its equal employment and educational mm. opportunity policies.
1: That's great. So
0: lots of good stuff happening all around, but there is some opposition, as you can imagine, with some people saying groups are using Charlie's murder to get special treatment. There's always going to be people that stand in the way of progress.
1: I said it's mind-boggling to think that people can say things like this because at the end of the day what these people are saying is recognizing somebody's humanity is a special treatment
0: yeah i think you're right it's mind boggling and and it's it's infuriating at times too
1: right yeah
0: you know i also want to point out that maine turns a corner and starts accomplishing some really big things In 1993, Maine passes their civil rights act, their kind of hate crimes law that prevents harassment and violence and considers motive and sentencing. And eventually Maine passes an anti-discrimination law. It's introduced by Governor Baldacci of Bangor who had been a Senator when Charlie died. And you know, Sadia, I actually went to school in Maine (laughs) from 1997 to 2001. Um, And for me, you know, my exposure to the LGBTQ community at my school and the surrounding community really opened up my own worldview and helped me overcome some of my own homophobic views and stereotypes and ideas Mm. that I had growing up um, as a kid in New England. And so for me, it's really remarkable to see how far Maine and Mainers have come. And, you know, just to point out, you know, Maine was the first state in 2012 to legalize same-sex marriage in a vote. And they were the first state in 2014 to elect an openly gay governor. So, you know, obviously there is still work to be done in the state and in the country um, and on a personal level for all of us. But it's really great to see just how far, you know, we've come since Charlie's murder, you know, 40 years ago.
1: Absolutely, Asad. Absolutely. So what's the latest, Asad?
0: Yeah, so today, both an annual Pride Parade and Pride Festival take place in Bangor, and July 7th, the day that Charlie died, is celebrated as Diversity Day.
1: That's so good, said I am so glad that we were able to make progress. But what happened to the perpetrators?
0: Yeah, so Sean was convicted in the late 80s and early 90s of other misdemeanors like assault, and criminal mischief, but nothing after that. He said in a very rare 1994 interview that he thought about Charlie's death every day and, of course, felt guilty. He said, quote, Charlie Howard was so young, he was helpless Mm -hmm. that night, and three reckless kids come along and, just for the hell of it, toss him over the bridge. Because of our actions, Charlie Howard lost his life, end quote.
1: I'm glad he's at least remorseful, right? Yeah,
0: 100%. So Daniel has never spoken publicly about the incident, and we also don't know where Roy is, Charlie's friend. He seems to have fallen off the radar as well. And then the third perpetrator, James, uh, is now married with kids and still lives in Bangor. He works at an electrical firm. He did outreach at schools on tolerance and gay rights uh, across Maine for about a decade after his release, and he supported anti-discrimination legislature at the state level. And he actually co-wrote a book, you know, kind of a mea culpa called Penitence, a true story in 1994 about the experience and just a note, he didn't collect any royalties from that. Hmm. In his lectures, James says that he, quote, had never seen the man before and the man had done absolutely nothing to provoke the attack. The only reason Charlie Howard died that summer night 10 years ago was that he was gay, end quote. He admits that harassing gay boys was a common activity then, and it usually had no consequences. So, you know, Sadia, I didn't know Charlie Howard's name until researching this episode, but it just seems like it's one of those names that it's so important to know and know his story, right? And so his death is the first fully recognized hate crime murder of a gay person in the US.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Let's remember it and share his story. You know, the one thing that I remember and will share about the story is how, as a 23-year-old gay kid in Maine in 1984, he was so unapologetically himself. You know, I'm 43, and I still struggle with that.
1: (laughs) I said, this is so disheartening. I hope more people know about this story. I didn't know about this story. And just for our listeners, normally when Asad and I work on a story... We research and read about it prior to recording, but today we wanted to do something different. So, Asad worked on it. I had no clue who we were going to honor today. And just listening to this story is making me so sad and emotional right now. And I can only say that it's so important for all of us to respect and honor humanity before anything else.
0: Well said, Sadia. So thanks for listening to Invisible Hate. If you'd like to support LGBTQ youth in Maine or across the country, we'll have links in the show notes. We'll also be making a donation to Equality Maine. Please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story that you think we should cover. You can reach us at info at You can also find us on all the socials. You can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. Invisible Hate is a production of Rafaelion Media and Immigrantly. We'd like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Isabel Havens, Lindsay Gamble, and Peroma Chakravarti. Our music is done by Simon Hutchinson.
1: So before we sign off, I just want our listeners to remember that it takes a lot of time, energy, and research to bring these stories to all of you. So do consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We are also thinking of starting our Patreon at some point, and we'll share links to that soon, so stay tuned for that.
0: We'll be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until next time, I'm Asad Bhatt.
1: And I'm Sadia Khan.